The Mysteries of Watergate, Episode 27, Covering Up the CIA Defense. I want to talk to you tonight from my heart on a subject of deep concern to every American. Those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. I've been charged with involvement in a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. What has come to be known as the Watergate Affair. I'm John O'Connor author of the book Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. We have talked so far about various aspects of Watergate that never made it into the public domain. This includes the odd circumstances of the burglary, the status of Howard Hunt and Mullen, and the seeming target of the eavesdropping. Any substantial revelation of one set of these three subjects would have aroused such questions that the other two would also demand scrutiny. If and when that hypothetical status of the public's knowledge had eventuated, the Post would need to elucidate each of these key areas if it wished to stay ascendant in its coverage. But we know that a public trial scheduled to begin in January 1973, where at least some of these subjects would need to be broached. A key feature of our democratic systems has always been public trials, where, absent some extremely rare circumstances, all the facts and all the testimony exhibits are open to the public. The public nature of our trials is especially important when an issue is presented of wider public interest. For instance, even before our country was founded, the Boston Massacre trial was conducted in Massachusetts under the English norms of public proceedings on which our American legal system was later based. A future president, John Adams, defended the British soldiers accused of unnecessarily shooting and killing several colonists, understandably outraging the populace. But by public explication of all the facts, adduced by the skilled efforts of Adams, the public was shown that the soldiers were understandably in fear for their lives and the shooting, while unfortunate, could not be found to be unjustified and criminally so. After all, the jury, sworn representatives of the populace and colonists themselves, so found. In later trials, criminal and civil both, the public learned salient facts on which to form its opinions. Let us name but a few examples. One is the Scopes Monkey Trial, challenging the teaching of evolution in schools in Tennessee. The trial of Sacco and Vanzetti, about foreign-born alleged terrorist anarchists, conducted in the early 20th century when such activity threatened the Republic. United States versus Patricia Hearst, exploring the not uncommon occurrence of a young person in the 1970s America joining a radical terrorist group. O.J. Simpson's two trials, one criminal, one civil, exploring the issue of racism in policing. Similarly, trials for the murder of San Francisco gay activist Harvey Milk, also young African-American Trayvon Martin, and many others. Certainly as of January 1973, when the burglary trial began, the issues should have loomed large in this case. Sensational Washington Post reporting of October 1972, aided by source Deep Throat, had posited that the burglary was but a small part of a larger campaign of spying and sabotage on political opponents directed from the White House, seemingly abusing the powers of the presidency and his administration in a campaign. Was our president illegally seeking re-election based upon 
abuse of his powers, subverting our democracy. There are several important aspects of a public trial going well beyond the actual evidence adduced from the witness stand. One important part of a public trial is the pre-trial anticipation of the issues to be tried so that the public can be properly attuned once evidence does come to the fore. For instance, in the Patricia Hearst case, the public became well aware of, quote, brainwashing, unquote, issues. In that case involving the so-called Stockholm Syndrome, where a captive identifies with her captor, the public knew what it was about to observe and analyze. Another important source of public knowledge comes from pretrial motions, heard in open court, often delineating the issues to be tried and any disputes over the admissibility of evidence. Again, it is part of the right of the public to know whether the trial is fair or unfair and what issues to examine as the trial unfolds. Of course, in these pretrial hearings, or hearings outside the jury's presence, as well as in the trial itself, it is important that the media be involved. After all, how is the public to know of these issues? And just as in the 1775 Boston Massacre trial, the Watergate trial publicity in 1972 would be dependent again upon newspapers, the written press. Indeed, courthouse reporters, often with offices in the courthouse itself, have been long a staple of traditional American journalism. I was an assistant United States attorney for six years in the 1970s. Three reporters, one from each of the major Bay Area dailies, were stationed in the federal courthouse permanently. When any significant trial began, photographers combed the halls while graphic artists drew sketches of the witnesses, lawyers, judges, and jury. When we examine the Washington Post Watergate reporting, there is no better measure of it than its reporting of the burglary proceedings. As noted earlier, the reporting should involve filed motions, in-court hearings outside the jury's presence, and the trial itself. It, of course, should involve both pretrial and trial stages. In examining whether the Post omitted salient facts in its reporting, we will, as in other parts of our podcast, not always know with absolute metaphysical certitude what the Post editors and reporters knew and when they knew it. We, of course, can look to inference and probability from circumstantial evidence as to whether the Post knew a particular fact or whether it did not. Just by way of example, in the O.J. Simpson case, which many of us viewed, all of the evidence was circumstantial, none direct evidence. In doing so, we can analyze not only facts clearly known at the time to the Post, but also facts clearly known by the Post later on. So if we are determining whether the Post hid fact X at the time of publishing an article, it may be relevant if we show that the Post definitely knew of fact X at a later date and hid the fact even at that later date. From this type of evidence, we may infer that the Post likely hid the fact earlier. If a suspect husband tells police he did not know where his missing wife's car was abandoned, police may not be sure he knew the location at that time and lied. But if witnesses testify that the husband knew the location later but did not inform the police in a later interview, the jury can draw an inference that he was likely lying in the initial interview. So too can we draw inferences about the Post's knowledge in Watergate. 
So if we can show you with proof positive that the Post learned of certain facts after the Watergate trial, but concealed them at that point, we can infer that it was hiding them earlier. With these thoughts in mind, let us proceed to examine the extent to which the Post deliberately hid evidence of issues sought to be tried, court rulings on the evidence, and court hearings about certain evidence. Let's start with Howard Hunt. First, we note that Gordon Liddy considered himself a soldier who would be shot rather than blab. The Cubans similarly were loyal soldiers who would not talk, and James McCord was a loyal true blue CIA man who kept secrets to the grave. But Howard Hunt was a bit different. He was an urbane man, an Ivy Leaguer, a published novelist, albeit of potboiler spy thrillers, who shared a lovely domestic life with his wife and children in a suburban country club, Maryland. He did not relish the thought of years of hard time in a rat-infested prison far from home and away from his loving family. He knew he had an excellent defense to counter the prosecutor's charge of a guilty mind, that is, knowledge that his conduct was illegal. This defense, consistent with earlier episodes of this podcast, was that Hunt believed he was on a legal, presidential-approved national security mission, acting undercover for the CIA. This became known to him and his legal team, as well as the prosecutors, as the, quote, CIA defense, unquote. We have discussed some elements of this defense in earlier episodes. Part of the defense was, of course, that he was a falsely retired CIA agent, while, of course, working for Mullen undercover as a supposed copywriter. Also, we know that this defense was weakened when John Dean withheld his Hermes operational notebooks from the materials garnered from his safe, which would have shown him diarying his approvals, those that he had inveigled from the White House, and his reports to his CIA superiors, likely through his high-level CIA contact Thomas Karamesines, with whom he had bi-monthly tennis dates. We cannot say for sure what Hunt's lawyer William Bittman told the Post or other potential sources when he came up empty on his request for the notebooks Hunt had kept in his White House safe. Had Bittman complained to the prosecutors that this failure to produce these notebooks from the safe had hurt his defense, it makes circumstantial sense that he would have. I do this for a living and people scream bloody murder when evidence is not produced by the other side that is important. Had Bittman told the Post or other Post sources about his need for the notebooks in order to buttress the CIA defense? It seems probable and likely, but we cannot say anything more than that. But let's fast forward. At the confirmation hearings in May 1973 for his nomination to United States Attorney, Watergate prosecutor Earl Silbert, who was an assistant U.S. attorney, and his trial assistant Seymour Glanzer both testified that they were preparing in the fall of 1972 for Hunt's, quote, CIA defense, unquote. Now, to be sure, both Silbert and Glanzer were careful always to refer to the defense as, quote, spurious, unquote or, quote, phony, unquote. But there was no doubt but that these prosecutors knew with certainty of the planned defense by Hunt. There was at the time no formal requirement that the defense give the prosecutors formal notice of this defense. If there were such a requirement, the planned defense surely would have been made public. But if the prosecution knew of the defense to such a certainty that they spent considerable time preparing for it, 
they must have had a reasonable degree of certainty, that is, they had heard of the defense either directly or indirectly from Hunt's defense camp. In essence, both Silbert and Glanzer said that the likelihood of this defense was well known. Wouldn't our supposed superhuman Watergate reporters at the Post have heard of this defense as well? In answering this question, we should be reminded that the FBI was the support for the prosecutors, that they were the prosecutors' investigators, and the CIA defense would require vigorous investigation. Post reporters, as Woodstein admits in All the President's Men, had many close relationships with lower-level FBI agents who were on the ground in D.C. doing the investigation. And I suppose we need not remind the audience that Post reporter Bob Woodward had a very close relationship with the very head of the investigation who had access to all information, Mark Felt. So we ask, if the prosecution knew of the defense, if the FBI agents who were helping the prosecutors knew of the defense, is it likely that the many Post reporters with all of their sources had never heard of the defense? In any case, Silbert's testimony in May 1973 at his confirmation hearings cements this issue. So let's look at it this way. Let's assume that the Post was innocently ignorant of this defense back in the fall of 1972. And let's assume that the Post was not trying to hide the defense from the public. If so, when Silbert made his dramatic testimony about the CIA defense, shouldn't the Post have shouted this from the Raptors? Wouldn't this have been a sensational story? Hunt had been planning a CIA defense, the headline should have said. But oddly, the Post wrote nothing about this key public revelation of Silbert. This was the first time that, in a public record, the CIA defense was brooded about. Now, to be sure, the public was not getting regular transcripts of what Silbert was testifying to, nor were there any detailed reports of his testimony. The Post was likewise silent when the ostensibly retired James McCord testified early that summer, beginning May 24, 1973, in the Irvin hearings, explaining how his lawyer, Gerald Alch, was approached by Hunt's lawyer, Bittman, to corroborate this defense. McCord's testimony was corroborated by his lawyer, Alch. While the New York Times published a transcript of this testimony without comment, along with the entirety of McCord's statements, the Post stayed far away, publishing neither the testimony nor a comment on McCord's stunning revelation. After all, Hunt would not have proposed such a defense if it did not reflect reality or at least approach reality. By nature of his undercover work, skillful efforts are made to make it appear that the agent is not working for the intelligence agency actually employing him. Shouldn't the Post, at least by this point, have reported at least the possibility that Hunt was acting undercover as a CIA agent? Hunt likely had no idea that the CIA had given the FBI early on, that is on June 21, 1972, a memo admitting a cover relationship with Mullen. Ironically, per the past episodes, had the Post published the existence of this document, which it knew about but did not, Hunt would have known to seek it in his discovery from the prosecutors. Such a document would have helped immeasurably in his defense. Certainly, the government could not have denied the cover relationship with impunity. So the Post's cover-up of the Mullen cover contract helped in its subsequent cover-up of Hunt's potential CIA defense. 
Another blow to Hunt's defense, discussed in our earlier episodes, was dealt by Dean's sequestering of Hunt's operational notebook stored in his White House safe. Had Dean given this notebook to the FBI along with other items in the safe, Hunt would have had a strong, documented CIA defense, proving several similar operations for the CIA undercover, as well as Watergate. So, we should ask whether Hunt or Bittman ever revealed their reason for seeking the notebooks, which also included an address book, also likely corroborative, perhaps less so than the operational notebook. Bittman did put up a stink to the prosecutors in early December when they did not produce the notebooks in response to Bittman's discovery requests. Did Post reporters ostensibly all over the case know of Bittman's disappointment and further discussions with the prosecutors about this? We can only say from this remove that an alert reporter could have learned of this, one with his ear to the ground of courthouse gossip. And that there is some degree of likelihood that a Post reporter did so learn by December 1972. But for our present purposes, this question is not momentous, because the Post did learn of this non-production by early March 1973, as revealed by a March 3, 1973 article by Woodstein about the missing notebooks. Bittman is in fact quoted in the article, which revealed Hunt's request for the notebooks and the failure of the prosecution to produce. Bittman is portrayed in the article as wanting the notebooks because they would support his claim of an, quote, illegal search, unquote, of Hunt's safe. And this was certainly one of his purposes. The theory of the illegal search was that the notebooks, with recent entries, would have shown recent occupancy by Hunt of his office, and thus an expectation of privacy, which would not have existed had he abandoned the office. Clearly, the Post's major purpose in publishing this article was to use the missing notebooks to suggest that they would have revealed administration, quote, topsiders, unquote, who would have authorized the operation. In other words, the Post printed the story in a way to suggest Oval Office guilt. But in doing so, did the reporters conceal the proposed CIA defense? This seems highly likely. A successful challenge to the search of Hunt's office, after all, would likely not have allowed Hunt to walk. After all, the government could prove Hunt's participation in the burglary seven ways to Sunday without any of the safe's contents. So a ruling that the search was illegal would not have prohibited most of the evidence against Hunt. The burglars possessed a country club check of Hunt's in the amount of $6.36. His address and phone numbers were in their address book, and Baldwin could finger Hunt as running the operation on site. So it is a realistic inference to say that a freely cooperative Bittman, speaking of his defenses to the reporters, would have mentioned a national security search, most likely with the claim of Hunt's being an undercover CIA operative. Do we have any other evidence that Bittman would have told the Post of this defense? We do. The first tranche of Oval Office tapes were produced in late October 1973. On them, Dean discusses with Ehrlichman having withheld the notebooks from Hunt's safe. To be sure, there's no suggestion that Dean actually showed the notebooks to Ehrlichman since they would have nailed Dean, the true reason Dean withheld them. Dean likely had let Ehrlichman know that the notebooks implicated the senior aide in the fielding burglary, such that Dean was supposedly protecting Ehrlichman by withholding the notebooks. Up to this point, Dean had denied knowing anything about Hunt's claim of missing notebooks. 
In December 1972, he had denied to the prosecutors ever seeing them, claiming he had no idea what a Hermes notebook was. Thereafter, ostensibly coming clean to the prosecutors, he still concealed his concealment of the notebooks. So in the next episode, we will analyze whether the Post assisted in concealing the implications of Dean's concealment. Thank you for listening. I have just completed a book on the same subject, entitled The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened. While it covers the material in our podcast, I have added two chapters of contextual materials and removed the repetition needed for a podcast. For those enjoying this series, it will serve as a valuable historical reference. For your non-listening friends, it will prove enlightening and entertaining. Thank you for your support.